Hebrews chapter 6. I have already gotten some texts and emails saying, what is up with Hebrews chapter 6? Hebrews chapter 6 is arguably the, one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to understand. <clears throat> and here we are going to tackle it together today. And I just want to give you, this is the general overview, though, of the theme of Hebrews chapter 6. And this is what it is. It, it, the writer is there to tell us it's time to move forward. <clears throat> it's time to move forward. So say it with me, would you? It's time to move. And say it again. It's time. <clears throat> so as we approach Hebrews 6, <clears throat> I need to remind us all about the golden rule of Bible study. And this is going to help us with this challenging passage that we're going to work through together. The golden rule of Bible study is know the context. Know the context in which you're reading. If you just look at a verse or look at a couple verses, it would be very easy to maybe misunderstand what's going on unless you understand the broader context of what you're dealing with. And so the wording, the purpose, the surrounding verses and chapters are critical to understanding Scripture, especially challenging passages like what we're going to be discussing here in Hebrews chapter 6. So to understand the significance of context, um, I just want to share a very personal story for you, and I, and I think this will illustrate it very well. Back in 1993, I ended up in a room with about, I think, six to eight other individuals. Now, this, this account that I'm just about to tell you, um, I have not shared with anyone in this room. No one else in this room except my wife knows this. I never told the search team when I came. I've not told any pastors. I've not told the elders. I've not shared this with anyone. Only my wife knows this story. But in 1993, I ended up in a room with about six to eight other people. And through a series of unique events, one of the individuals in a room pulled out a knife and actually stuck it into my abdomen. And to this day, I have three scars in my abdomen from that very event that day. Now, for sake of context, the building we were in was a hospital. The room I was in was an operating room. The man who pulled a knife out was a doctor. Are you feeling a little bit better right now? Okay. And I had a hernia repair surgery. And so now we realize <clears throat> that context is important. And in fact, two weeks later, I met up with a surgeon and I actually thanked him for cutting me open. Some of you are like, I'm going to get that guy when we get in the foyer after the service. Well, today we come to a series of verses that without context can bring some alarm. 
or at worst some confusion to um, when we read it. And notice these verses are in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, and we're going to get to them when we work through this. But notice these verses. I'm going to read them for you right here. Look at them in your copy of the Scriptures. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, and it says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, if you're with me on this and you read these verses, you realize that at a surface level, without any context, they appear to go in the opposite direction to everything that we've taught in this ministry to eternal security. It looks like individuals who trust in God and are believers, if they fall away, they can never, ever come back to God. So they can lose their position of sonship, and then even more unique than that, if they lose it, they can never, ever get it back. Now, I'm here to tell you that in researching this and working through this for today, I went through seven commentaries. And going through seven commentaries, I ended up with seven different views on this passage. Some say they are not believers at all. And I'm here to tell you, just at a very um, quick way, I believe that by the description that they are believers, I believe that the description, they've been enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gifts, and some people say, oh, they only tasted. Uh, well, the Bible also says that Jesus tasted death for us, well, and he actually died. They shared in the Holy Spirit. They tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. I, I believe that they are believers. I believe that the context, he's writing to believers. I also believe that when it says that they fall away, how can someone fall away from something that they weren't at? And then how can they not be brought back to a place that they weren't at to begin with? I believe he's talking about believers. So you realize this is going to be a challenging passage, and I also realize this is the 9 a.m. service. So we're really going to have to stick with each other for a moment. When we're all done here, when you leave, there's stickers in the back that said, I survived a message on Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and you'll all get one when you leave here this morning. So here's the golden rule of Bible study. Know the context. Know the context. So let me walk through the context with you. We'll probably walk through a little more context than what we will these three verses. So let me give you the context. Number one, if you're taking notes, um, here's some different thoughts. This letter was written to Jewish believers. So these were individuals who went through and had a, a background in 
the sacrificial system before coming to Jesus Christ. If I can just give you a little understanding of their history before they put their faith and trust in Jesus every day, their background was this. They would, they would have sacrifices that would atone for their sins temporarily. So they would atone for their sins through the sacrifices of animals or that of birds that would symbolize something that would take the punishment for the wrong that they've done, and then they would start to do well through the day. And then obviously they would screw up or fail, and, and they would get dirty spiritually, and then the next day, you know what, they would wake up, and then they would need to go back to the very beginning, and then they would need to once again atone for their sins and have more sacrifices and then they would go through their day, and then guess what? They would do more wrong and more sin, and then the next day they would wake up, and then they would have to atone for their sin again. And this was the habit of their religious life. This was the routine of their life. These sacrifices were that which would visibly show that there was sin that would transgress God, and it needed to be punished for them to be at peace with God. It was an imperfect solution and system. Everyone needed it. They needed the sacrifices. The priest even needed sacrifices. Hebrews chapter five, verse three, this is, this is what the verse says. It says, this is why he, the priest, has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. The sacrifices were imperfect sacrifices. They couldn't fully atone. The priests were imperfect priests. They could not care for the sins of the people. They needed their sins to be cared for. And here's the big phrase to be thinking about this morning. In place of an imperfect system, and it was imperfect, the sacrifices were imperfect, the priests were imperfect. In place of an imperfect system, God sent a perfect Savior. In place of an imperfect system, God sent a perfect Savior. If you would look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, and here's what the text mentions. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Notice this phrase. This is critical. Once made perfect, speaking of Jesus... He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So in place of an imperfect system, God sent a perfect savior. In place of the imperfect sacrifices, in place of the imperfect priest and one day they made the sacrifices they atoned for their sins they moved on but then they had to come back to the beginning it was it was a kind of this lather rinse and then repeat day after day after day and here's the phrase to to latch on to this 
in place of a temporary atonement, God provided an eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. In place of a temporary atonement, God provided an eternal salvation through Jesus. I just, if you can look at it again, these are the critical context issues. Look at verse 8 through 10 of chapter 5. Again, this is right in there. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Verse 9 is the big deal. And once made perfect, he became the source. What does your text say? He became the source of what? Eternal? Eternal salvation. It's eternal. I want to show you one other passage in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 10. 12 through 14 and verse 18. This just lays it right out there. This is the difference between Jesus and between what they had. And the text mentions this, but when this priest had offered, and here's the big phrase, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Here's the next phrase. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever. By one sacrifice he's made perfect forever. Those two words were foreign to Jewish people in the old system. Perfect forever. Because every day they would wake up and they realized they did new things that displeased God and they had to go back to the starting point of repentance and atone for their sin. Every day there was a renewal back to the beginning. And the difference with Jesus is by one sacrifice he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And then verse 18 says, And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Now that would just blow their mind. No longer a need. You don't have to go back and sacrifice anything else. You don't need to wake up the next day and sacrifice an animal or a bird. Jesus is the one sacrifice, the eternal sacrifice, where all of your sin is now completely covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't, you don't have to go back to the beginning. You can keep on going. And this is the context that all of this is written in. And I love what 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. This was an absolute mind-blowing experience for Jewish people. It was totally a quantum leap from what the readers were used to. From having to daily care for your sin to now wake up the next day and know that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice 
that took care of all of it. I don't need to go back to the beginning. I don't have to go back and redo my repentance. I don't need to have a priest sacrifice anything on my behalf. No more sacrifices needed ever again, forever forgiven before God. The foundation of their faith was Jesus. It was eternally set. There was no need for improvement, for revision, or for renewal. It was done, period, completed, finished. No need to go back to the beginning. No need to be resaved. Jesus doesn't need to die again. It was for all time one sacrifice for sins. And the only other way I can put it is what the hymn writer said years and years and years ago, one of my most favorite hymns of the faith. He said, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. That's the whole thing right there. Now, that's good news. Are you with me on this? That's great news. But this was news to these people. This was mind-blowing. I don't have to go back? This is why they were hovering around the starting line of the faith. And so here's why the writer gives this idea, it's time to move forward. It's time to move forward. It's time to move on. And the writer gives two primary commands in this passage in Hebrews chapter 6. And he tells them, stop going back to the foundation of repentance and move on to maturity. And I need to move on in my message. So here we go. Here's the two commands. Genuine believers must, number one, they must stop trying to restart what Jesus made eternal. Stop trying to restart what Jesus made eternal. This is chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. So now that we have some context, they were used to starting here, taking a few steps, and coming back day after day after day. And here's what the writer says. Notice verse 1. He says, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Notice this, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, their crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. 
Let me just give you what I believe the, the writer is getting at here this morning. The writer phrases this in two ways in verse 1. Move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and don't lay again the foundation. Stop trying to restart what Jesus made eternal. So for the Jewish believers, there were some expressions that marked the beginnings of their faith in Jesus. I want to give you three categories. We could really spend a lot of time in each of these. But notice there was a few things that may catch your attention in verse 1 and 2. It mentions, um, he mentions not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God. This was a category of repentance and faith, the very beginning of our expression to God that marks the initiation of our spiritual life with Jesus, repentance and faith. So he says, move on from repentance and faith. He mentions another category in verse 2, instructions about cleansing rites and the laying on of hands. Some texts talk about baptisms. And these are horizontal expressions. Oftentimes these were things that were maybe expressed in the, especially the early church. The, the early church did them together to express their identification with Jesus. Cleansings and laying on of hands. Then there's a third category. These are doctrinal expressions. And he mentions the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are all things that would have been early on understandings of believers. Your repentance and faith, your expression to God, your cleansings and laying on of hands, your horizontal expressions to each other, and then your doctrinal expressions, they would have talked about, you know, at the end, there would be a resurrection of the dead, and those who don't believe this would be judged eternally. These are all things that would have been understood at the beginning and done at the beginning. And the writer is saying, you know, it's time to move on from these. And he mentioned, don't lay again the foundation. They were used to when they sinned. To coming back to the point of repentance, the very beginning. His message was this. Your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. There's no need to go back day after day to keep rehearsing the beginning. There's no need to start all over again. And he gives them three reasons. And here's what they are. Thinking we renew our permanent salvation is a hindrance to maturity. He says it right in here. Leave the elementary teachings and be taking forward toward maturity. If we don't leave what is there, we'll never move on to maturity. Here's the second one. This is the one that I know is a sticky wicket for some people. Renewing our permanent salvation, and this is verses four through six. Renewing our permanent salvation is actually a spiritual impossibility. It's a spiritual impossibility. I want to mention just a few things. And I know that these are heavy. 
but I'm just going to give them to you, and then um, maybe if we don't have opportunity to get through all of it, we can come back to it next week. But renewing our permanent salvation is an impossibility. Here's, here's a few things. I, this is what I believe he's getting at. He says it's impossible. If I can take those next uh, descriptions, it's impossible for those who have been enlightened. If I can just take those and say it's impossible for believers who fall away. Um, those who have maybe been around in the faith for a while, understand a word for fall away as apostasia. Falling away from the faith. Now I'm going to tell you, I've mentioned this commentary here by Warren Wearsby, Be Confident, as something for us to study. We have them available in our bookstore. So this is a little commercial this is the one commentary that actually got this right. That the word here is not apostasia. It is parapipto. It is actually a different word. It does not mean as harsh of an understanding as apostasia. It actually means to fall alongside and I believe that the understanding here is it is impossible for believers who fall alongside to be brought back to repentance. It is impossible to be resaved. I'm going to tell you it's this direction. We look at it as though someone may lose their salvation and they can't come back to it this way. I'm telling you, I believe he's looking at it from a Jewish believer's perspective. And I'm going to share with you why. He says, if you go ahead and you're a believer and you sin, it's impossible to go back to repentance this way. You don't need to be resaved. Here's the reason for it. Notice verse Six, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Here's the whole understanding I believe he's getting at. He's telling these people, you know what? It's time to move on to maturity. It's time to keep on going. If you end up sinning, don't think you need to go back and get resaved. It's not only a hindrance to maturity, you're making a statement about Jesus. You're making a statement that his sacrifice is no better than the animals, that you need to redo it, that maybe there's a sin he didn't cover. Maybe there's an issue that wasn't handled at the cross, and, and I really believe he's saying it's impossible if all of your sin is covered, if it's an eternal salvation, if what he did handled your sin forever, it is actually impossible for you to be resaved. It's this whole idea. Imagine this. If you go ahead and fail eighth grade, for some of us it may have been a reality. You don't go back to kindergarten, do you? 
if you disobey your parents, you don't have to redo your birth certificate. And I think this is the same idea that the writer of Hebrews is saying. You know what? If you mess up, if you parapipto, if you fall alongside, this is different, he's telling these Jewish believers, this is different than what you had before. It's impossible. Your sin's already covered. You just keep going. And this is the whole understanding of the text. Don't try to restart what God already finished. It's handled. It's handled because of Jesus Christ. And the whole issue is this. When someone believes Jesus is greater, he's greater sacrifice, he's a greater priest, and they put their faith in action. When they sin, and we all do, in humility we accept his eternal forgiveness. There's never a problem with the foundation. There's never a problem with Jesus. There's nothing about his sacrifice that's defective or that needs redoing. It's set. It's locked. It's solid. We need to stop trying to restart what Jesus made eternal. It's impossible to get re-saved if one is genuinely a believer because his sacrifice already paid it all. And to say otherwise is making a mockery of his death. And here's the second command, and I need to move through these a little bit. I'm going to take you a couple minutes over. Second command is move forward to maturity. He gives six questions. He answers six questions about maturity. What is maturity? What is maturity? He answers this in this whole context. I love it. It's a lot different than what we think it is. Sometimes we say, well, maturity is you got to go to church, and if you have a degree in Bible, you're more mature, and if you know a lot, and if you do all the ministry programs, that's maturity. And he answers, and I mentioned it last week, he says, maturity is eagerness for God's word. It's investing in the lives of others, discipling others. By now you should be a teacher, but instead you need someone to teach you. And it's living out what we understand. It's living righteously. That's maturity. How do we produce it? Some people say, you know, if I just put together enough effort, but I love this. Verse 1 and verse 3, he mentions be taken forward to maturity. It's a passive thing. Verse 3 says, in God permitting, we will do so. You know how we produce maturity? It's not in and of ourselves. It's only with the help of God. God carries us toward it. As we yield to him and act on his word, as we relinquish our passion for the past, 
he carries us on to maturity. He develops it in our lives. Here's another great question. Who does it benefit? That's verse 7. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, that produces a crop, notice, useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. Who does maturity benefit? Benefits others. Verse 10 mentions the same answer. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Maturity benefits others. Some show maturity as look at how I am. Look at me and what I understand or look at me and what I can do. And that's not maturity. That's actually pride. Maturity benefits others. Now land that produces thorns and thistles, the Bible says is worthless. They're not believers. And they're going to be pulled together and it's a sign of judgment, verse 8. They're going to be burned. It's going to be the end. And it's a warning. Next question, is maturity worth it? I'm just going to give you the quick answer from verse 10. God's not unjust. He will not forget your work. Quick answer, is maturity worth it? You know the answer to that. The answer is, yes, it is. God's not going to forget what you do. It's worth it. God remembers. He's just. I love this one. How long do I need to work at maturity? Verse 11. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. So I'm just going to answer this. How long do I need to work on this? Only until you die. Then you're done. We're going to have to work on maturity until the very end. What hinders maturity? Verse 12. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherited what has been promised. What hinders it? Laziness. Slowness to respond to God's word. Your stickers will be in the back. He survived Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Man, it's a big one to wrap our hearts around. Let me give you three things as we finish. If you're far from Jesus, can I talk to your heart right now? If you're far from Jesus, our sin will be punished. All sin will be punished. But the beauty of it, Jesus was punished for our sin when he died on the cross every wrong we've done he bore on his body when he suffered and died for us and I if you're far from Jesus that's your step embrace him forsake all else and embrace him. This phrase says it all. 
God's son became man so man can become God's son. Embrace him. Jesus is greater. He's greater than your works, thinking we can maybe be good enough. He's greater than church. He's greater than politics. He's greater than your spiritual routine. He's greater than your lineage or than your superstition. Jesus is greater, and if you're far from him, put your faith and your trust in him alone today. If you've blown it, you know your faith and trust is in Jesus, but if you've blown it, this is what the whole thing is about. You don't need to be resaved. There's no new sacrifice that you need. It's time to move on. Don't go back to the beginning. Jesus has forgiven you forever. Don't live in guilt. Knowing this message of redemption and the gospel, go on. Yield to him. Let him carry you forward to maturity. And what is the next step? And so for some of us here, the next step may be to say, you know what? I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to go public. I've never been baptized. I'm going to go public with my faith. Or for some, they're saying, I'm going to invest in someone else. By now, I should be a teacher. I've been around long enough. I should be teaching someone else. Instead, I'm in the consumer mode. Or for some, they're saying, I need to refine my attitudes and my rhythms to match God's word. There are some habits I need to break. There are some new habits I need to build. I need to get with other believers in a group this fall. But I have some steps I need to take toward maturity. And that's the whole message of Hebrews. It's time to move on from repentance, from the foundation, and move on to maturity. It's time to get trucking. What's your next step? Let's take it. Can we stand together? I want to pray with you. And I would love as we stand... What is your next step? What's your next step right now? As you close your eyes, as I pray, would you message to God in your heart, what's your next step? Is it faith in Jesus Christ? Is it forsaking something you know you should? Is it a public statement? Is it an investment in someone else? Is it a new habit to pick up for God? What's your next step? And Father, I pray that by your Spirit and by the help of you carrying us along that you would enable us to do exactly that. Carry us to maturity. Help us not to be stuck where we are. Not to linger around the starting blocks or the beginning. Not to hang around infancy, but God, carry us on 
away from dependency, away from consumerism, to where we're contributors to your kingdom, building into the lives of others. God, as tough as a passage as this is, use a nugget or two to nudge us forward, to put more faith in the greatest of all, Jesus, and the greatest act of all, his sacrifice for our sin. We're thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, as you leave, don't forget those connection cards in the giving boxes as you go. Probably need to mask up for a moment, and our cleaners are going to come through and whisk this place up for the next group coming in. God bless you. Good to see you.